Well, good morning. You ready to dive into some First Samuel together? We got, we got introduced to uh, Hannah last week, and we're going to pick up just as she has heard grace and peace be to you from Eli the high priest. If you uh, weren't with us last week, you can feel free to watch that online on the app. Download our app at horizoncc.com. We've worked out the glitches, so you can watch that with no pauses as well. So we're going to look at Hannah, part two of her story in chapter one. As we mentioned in the video, we're living during the time of the judges. Post-Moses, post-Joshua in the land, we're now in the time of the judges, time of Ehud, uh, time of Gideon, time of Jephthah, or Samson, probably one of the most famous or Gideon judges during the time. So Samuel's living during the same time as Samson, only in a different area of Israel, and he becomes almost like the last judge and the first prophet. He's called neither of those because he kind of has his own special category here. And then Hannah's song we're going to look at next week is actually going to give us an overview of the theme for the entire book. Throughout this book, we're going to look at how God elevates the humble and actually opposes the proud and works in the middle of unbelievable chaos to bring about his purposes. So we pick up here in verse 9. It says, So Hannah arose from this prayer. Here she is in Shiloh before the ark of the Lord. And she's been praying for God. I want a son. I want a son. I want a son. Eli says, Peace be to you. She's heading back. She finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat of the doorpost at the tabernacle of the Lord. And last week we had a chance to see kind of what the area of the country looks like here in Shiloh. This is the area that they believe the tabernacle sat during that time. And this became a location all through history of people coming to seek God's favor, seek God's forgiveness, and seek God's mercy. In fact, archaeologists for years to come have found remnants of churches in this location, even mosques in this location. So this became a very holy site. And in the book of Samuel, about 350 years, the ark will sit here as a place that God comes for mercy. Let me show you a little bit what happens at this church. This is years later, but just to show you how sacred this site is. This basilica you can walk into today, it actually has some mosaics that show both the Jewish and Christian roots of how this story of Samuel has impacted generations. There's a mosaic there of the Star of David, and there's another mosaic of a, of a vineyard. You think about Jesus saying, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. All throughout there are these incredible vineyards. And underneath that is an inscription that says, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on Shiloh and its inhabitants. Amen. So this became a very sacred place all through history. And yet as archaeologists have dug down, they've dug down far enough to find actual archaeological remains from the time of Elkanah and from the time of Eli. Like here's some remains of the Iron Age houses in Shiloh from the time of Samuel. So imagine just right there, this could have been Eli's home. This could have been the marketplace that Hannah and Elkanah got some food before they began their 30-mile their journey to head back to Ramah. But if you weren't with us last week, quick summary, Hannah has prayed before God, asked God into the bitterness of her soul. She's been barren for 20-plus years. She's got a sister wife who's been mercilessly making fun of the fact that she can't have children. When Peninnah could. She pleads with God, please remember me. Remember that word, remember me. Do not forget me. Look into my life. And now, having given peace and grace from God, she's heading back to her hometown. 
And it's there that we actually find our key verse for today. So if you open up your Bible and you look at our key verse, this might be a verse you want to memorize, a verse you want to look into. This is our key verse for the day. And the key verse is this. The Lord has granted me my petition, and I, which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. Now look at that. God granted me my petition. What I really wanted was a son. And her response to finally receiving 20 years after praying about it is to lend it back to the Lord. Are you willing to lend back to the Lord that which you longed from the Lord? I mean, this is the ultimate expression of stewardship. Realizing that whatever God does give you, it's on loan anyway. So you can loan back to God your time, your money, your opportunities, and even your children. And today we're going to look at how to develop a thankful heart by lending back to God that which you longed from God. We're going to have two ways to remember. Two ways to remember what God has done for you to develop a thankful heart. Because uh, Berkeley did a study, 15-year study, and found that those who practice the discipline of gratitude and thankfulness are much happier and much healthier. Those who out loud before God and other people are grateful for what's going right in their life, as you're going to see Hannah does, are much healthier and happier. Less sinus headaches, less intestinal issues, simply by being grateful. So today's a real cheap way to be healthier and happier. Learn how to be grateful like Hannah does. Let's look at the, uh, the first way to remember. We remember what you've received from the Lord. To actively think about, meditate, and put ways in your life, disciplines in your life to help keep track of not what God isn't doing, but remember what He has done for you. So again, the story picks up here. They arose early in the morning, and they worshipped before the Lord, and they returned and came to their house at Ramah. So again, they've been at Shiloh, where the ark is. Now they've traveled over to Ramah. So if you see on the map, the big dot in the middle there is Shiloh. And they've traveled about 30 miles, about a nine-hour hike, to get to their house at the lower section there in Ramah. And it says they come to their house. In fact, archaeologists have found that there's a particular type of building style that the Israelites used during this time period. They call it the four-room house. You'll see this top view. Here's one big living area room. Then there'd be a second room, a third room, and then they would construct a fourth room. And sometimes they would divide that fourth room up for additional storage. Now, in this case, we have a man who has two wives and a very large family. It could have even been a two-story home. So here's what the interior of a, of a home may have looked like during that time period. You had your animals in your home often. You had bedrooms in your home. You had a living space in your home. But this is kind of the idea of what they've walked into here as they're back home. And here's where God shows up. It says, And Elkanah, now that they've arrived home, knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So here they are, coming back home, they're making love together, and God is remembering them, remembering their promise, remembering their prayer, that they've longed to have a son for 20 years. Now, why does he remember her now and not the last 20 years of prayers that's often the frustration of walking with God we don't know why he chooses to say no and why he chooses to say go at times why he chooses to say slow down not yet or sometimes grow grow before I'm going to answer this prayer but the Lord remembers her so it came to pass and look at these time words it came to pass 
in the process of time that Hannah conceived. Now, part of that certainly is the nine months of pregnancy. But there's two time phrases there. We don't know that she got pregnant on the first attempt or the first day or the first week or the first month. So even after 20 years of praying, God remembered her, but it still took some time until the the culmination of that prayer came to be. So she has the child, and Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel. And here's very interesting. The name Samuel was to remind her to be thankful to what God has done. For the name means, because I have asked for him from the Lord. Literally means God heard me, Samuel. So she remembered what she had received from the Lord. And she put a discipline in her life that every time she called her son's name, she'd be reminded of what she had received from the Lord. Come here, Samuel, come here, come here. Oh, that's right, God remembered me. Samuel, Samuel, time to eat. God remembered me. Do you have disciplines in your life to remind yourself to remember what you've received from the Lord? Remember I told you that Berkeley study said you could be happier and healthier just by being thankful. What if for the next seven days, or even challenge yourself the next 30 days, what if you every day made a list of four things that you're thankful for? God, thank you for my house. Like we prayed, the breath in my lungs, my friendships, my spouse, my kids. Thank you, God, we never had to struggle with infertility. Thank you, God, that you are with me even in our struggles for infertility. Thank you, Father, for getting me through cancer. Thank me, Lord, that I don't currently have cancer. What if every day you made a list of four or five things to remember what you've received from the Lord? And then you said it out loud to him in prayer or out loud to the parents or the kids or the spouses in your life. And you began to develop the discipline of remembering what you received from the Lord. Because isn't it true that often we'll start off thankful and then it becomes invisible? Remember your first job? Thank you, God, for the first job. And that's just a paycheck that you've earned. I was listening to the story of Jason Weave. He was the voice of uh, Simba rather, in the first Lion King. And they're negotiating the big deal. This is his first big break. And the contract that his agent signed was for $2 million. And he was overwhelmed. He went to sign the contract and his mom said, wait a second. There's no royalties in there. Yeah, it's not offering any royalties. Let's renegotiate and get some royalties. So Disney came back and offered them a check for $100,000. But with royalties. Mom's like, I'm telling you, trust me, this will be a good thing. So he trusted his mom, took the check for only $100,000. As Lion King re-released and re-released and re-released, over the years that paycheck came in and came in and came in and well exceeded the $2 million. And you think he remembered every single check to thank mom for that decision that was made 20 years earlier? No, do any of us do that? That's my point. God, God gives us wisdom like a, like a loving mother in a circumstance because he knows more than we do. He can see far than we do. And yet over time, those checks keep coming in of what he's provided for us and we forget because his provisions become invisible. Andrew Claven wrote the book, uh, True Client, uh, the movie True Crime with uh, Clint Eastwood. And he was asked, what's the secret to a great marriage? He's just kind of known in Hollywood for having a great marriage. He said, the secret is one word, gratitude. 
your spouse is doing things for you and has been serving you for years and many of the ways your spouse has served you have become invisible to you. They're just things you expect. And vice versa, what you've done for them has become invisible. The secret to marriage is taking what's invisible and making it visible by gratefully noticing and mentioning what you've received from the Lord directly and indirectly from the people around you. Develop a thankful heart by remembering, remembering what you've received from the Lord. Our second remember is to remember to go up and offer up. To go up and offer up. Now, they, archaeologists have found a, a geezer calendar from the 10th century, which would have reflected maybe a typical calendar of what would have happened to a farmer or somebody working in agriculture in this time period. Here's what it says in that geezer calendar. Hey, two months of gathering, September, October. You're out there gathering, gathering, gathering. Two months of planting, November, December. Two months of late sowing, January, February. One month of cutting flax in March. And one month of reaping barley in April. So notice, some of your reaping time happened in April, and your gathering time happened in September. In other words, September was a very, very busy time, and April was a very, very, very busy time. And yet what we're going to find is that this farmer, this person raising cattle, who has plenty going on, he will remember to go up to Shiloh and offer up thanksgiving sacrifices to God at the busiest time of his life. God built a calendar of feasts, Passover, Sukkot, Pentecost, Yom Kippur, and he put them in some of the most inconvenient times in your calendar, the time you most need to reap in everything you've done. He said, I want you to come to temple and thank me for what I've done. Don't be too busy to say thanks. And that's where we find Elkanah. Now the man Elkanah and all of his house went up They had to go up to Shiloh to offer up to the Lord a yearly sacrifice and a vow. So notice there's two things here, yearly sacrifice and a vow. But Hannah did not go up. She said to her husband, not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So here and here we have three different ways that you can offer up thanksgiving to God. I'll mention all three in a little bit of detail. The first one is the yearly sacrifice. Elkanah and his house went up to Shiloh, 30 miles, nine-hour hike, during the busiest time of the year when we need to reap the barley. We're going to stop. We're going to trust God. We're going to make our way up to Shiloh, and we're going to offer up the yearly sacrifice. It was a way of saying, God, I want to give to you as a way of saying thanks for everything you've given to me. It was a way of remembering how God has been faithful to you, how God has provided for your fields, giving you the opportunity to produce wealth. It was a way of saying thanks. It was a yearly pattern of thanksgiving built into the calendar. Do you have patterns like that? After last week's service, I walked out of the 850 service and a couple came up to me and the husband said, I got to tell you, that was one of the most powerful services I've ever been part of. And that final song that was sung, I just felt God's presence. And I've been growing here and learning about God here now for, you know, 18 plus years. But I really want to say thanks to God. So I made, I made a, I had a conversation with John Kirby last year. And I told him that I was going to make a, a, a vow of faith to, to do a pretty big financial gift to God's work here at Horizon to say thanks for how he's been growing me. And I said it in front of my wife so, I, so she'd hold me accountable. 
thought that was kind of fun. And so we talked for a little bit, and I said, well, that is awesome. And so we chatted a little bit, how God has been growing him, some of the ways he was impacted in the service, and we got him connected to be able to give that gift and to be part of what God's doing here. But you know what I so appreciate? Here's somebody who made a vow that I didn't even know about, and a year later, John says, oh, I remember that conversation. Wanted to go and say thanks to God for what God has been doing in his life and growing him. That's an annual vow of faith. Now, the second one mentioned here is not just the annual giving, but it's actually a vow-motivated giving. See how he notices he says the vow? What's the vow he's talking about? Well, if you remember when, when... When Hannah was was here praying, she said, God, listen, you're God, but if it's up to me, I really, really want a child. And if you give me a child, I will do what? Remember? I will make him a Nazarite, which means he won't cut his hair like Samson, won't drink any alcohol, and he won't touch anything dead. Well, that was the vow she made. And so Elkanah was like, hey, we're heading up. We got a child now. We're heading up to temple, or to tabernacle, rather. Are we going to bring the child with? And she's like, I will, but not yet, because I want to wean him first. So this vow is pretty important, and look how Elkanah responds. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, hey, that's okay. Do what seems best to you. If we want to wait a couple years before we honor that vow, wait until you've weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Make sure you keep your vow. God takes vows very, very seriously. God wants our yes to be yes and our no to be no. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. I think one of those powerful things you can do in business, in life, in relationships, to be aligned with the Lord and to show respect and thanksgiving to others is to let your yes be yes and your no be no. To do what you say. Because God takes vows very, very seriously. Giving vows saying what you want to, what you're going to do, vows. That's how Jesus says it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. In fact, the book of Numbers, Moses laid that out pretty carefully. He said, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. You should keep your word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And I think the reason is because when we are faithful and what we say we do, we show the world what our God is like. Because God is faithful. And God keeps his word. And God's yes means yes. And God's no means no. And we want to emulate the God that we follow. The God of armies is trustworthy and he wants his followers to be trustworthy. And when we do break our word, he wants us to apologize and go and make it right. So this is this vow-driven thanksgiving. Now why is she bringing up, you're going to find she's going to come up with four bowls and some flour and some wine. What's going on here? I want to show you three passages back to back to show you a little bit about what's going on in this passage. So here in the middle is a passage from Samuel. When she had weaned him, she does take him up with her, and she takes three bowls. One ephah of flour and a skin of wine and brought him to the house in Shiloh, and the the child was very young. So we're not sure if she's coming to Passover. Some commentators think so, but there's no sheep. Some people think they're coming to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, because of these bulls, which I probably think is true. We'll see that in a moment. But why is she bringing bulls? And this ephah of flour is the most valuable flour. It's the hand-crushed uh, flour that takes hours and hours to put together. She's giving God her very best. 
flour, her very best bowls. But more than that, she's handing over her son, lending to the Lord that which she longed for from the Lord in thanksgiving for his faithfulness. So a couple things to understand. One is about the firstborn that God set up in Exodus. God said that everything that comes out of the womb, from every animal you own to every child, belongs to the Lord. Here's how he says it in Exodus. You shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. Every single firstborn that comes from an animal that you have belongs to the Lord. All of the males. Now why did God have them do that? Every time you're animal, your cow, your goat had a baby, the first male out was given to the Lord, to the priest to use as a sacrifice. It was to remind you to be thankful that he brought you out of Egypt when the firstborn died unless you had the blood over your door. God built this rhythm of thanksgiving into their calendar so every time your cat, your dog, your goat, your sheep, or your donkey had a baby, the first male child was sacrificed to the Lord to remind you to be thankful for your freedom. However, if you had a donkey, which was considered an unclean animal, you were allowed to redeem your donkey with a lamb. So in other words, you're like, well, we need the donkey to plow the field so you can kind of swap out. Here's a perfect lamb who's going to take the place so we can still use the donkey for work. And every firstborn child was also to be given to God's service. But you could redeem him back with a sacrifice. So here is Hannah going to God, and she is actually doing what Exodus talked about. She's putting Samuel into service. He's going to be a full-time priest for the rest of his life to honor this vow she makes. Now she brings a bull, and in Leviticus it mentions a burnt offering. And you would bring a male without blemish bull, and you would kill the bull. So this could have been just a typical day where she came and said, hey, we're going to come to the altar and sacrifice a bull to forgive the sins, what we've done, what I've done, my son's done. But it could be Yom Kippur. Because I mentioned last week, the God of armies fights for us between the two cherubim. And this was called the mercy seat. And there was two types of blood that got put on the mercy seat. Bull blood and goat blood. Never lamb blood, interestingly. So it could be they brought the bulls because on Yom Kippur, the high priest would go behind the curtain at the Holy of Holies. And he would put the, the sacrificed blood of a bull here to absorb the, the judgment of God, the consequence of our wrongdoing. That bull blood took the consequences so that you and I could be forgiven. And I mentioned last week in communion, that's the word mercy seat or propitiation that Paul picks up and says Jesus is our bull blood. Jesus is our absorber of the consequences. Jesus takes the wrath of God so that you and I can live in freedom. The other type of blood that would be put on the ark was because uh, it was from a goat. Because what they would do is they would take two goats together and they would cast lots. One goat would be sacrificed and its blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. The other one would be a scapegoat. That's where we get the idea of a scapegoat. He would escape being killed. You'd place your hands on the scapegoat and transfer the sins of all the people to the goat and he would be thrown out into the wilderness. A reminder that you've been separated from your sins as far as the east is from the west as he wandered off away. It's out of God's presence. Everything you've done wrong is out of God's sight. Here's my point. When we give financially, when we thank God verbally, 
We do it not out of obligation. We do it out of thanksgiving that he is our propitiation for his faithfulness in our life, for the way he's given us wisdom and forgiveness, the way he provided for us what we could not provide for ourselves, mercy. So ask yourself, do you have rhythms in your life to steward your life, to lend back to the Lord that which you've received from the Lord? And have you thought about your life as a life of stewardship? And it's not just financially. It certainly includes finances. I hope you're giving to God's work here at Horizon because of how God's been growing you. I hope you're giving beyond God's work here at Horizon to other places to say thanks to God. Beyond money, are you thinking about your opportunities? Your anger. Have you ever thought about your anger as a stewardship from God and how you're using it? How you're learning to control it? Are you thinking about the words you use to bless other people as a stewardship? That how you speak to your spouse, how you speak to your boss, how you speak to your employees as a stewardship? It's a way of saying thanks to God for how he speaks to you. Remember to go up and offer up annual offerings, vow-driven offerings, and finally it's forever offerings. Look what she mentions here about this forever offering. So she brings Samuel to Eli that he might remain there forever. Can you imagine handing over your three-year-old, grandson, or child? You're going to see him yearly, but it's forever. Next week, we're going to find out that when she does that, she bursts into song of thanksgiving. I'd have a lot to say that day. I'm not sure it would be a song of thanksgiving. So they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my, my Lord, I'm the woman who stood by you here when you called me the drunkard. Oh, no, no, no. I'm the woman who stood here praying to the Lord. He did call her drunkard if you were with us last week. I'm the one that prayed. And you told me, Grace, may, may God grant your request. He did. This is the child I prayed for. God has granted me my petition, which I asked for him. Therefore, I've lent back to the Lord that which I longed for from the Lord. And they worshipped. What a God we have who is so thankful. We're so thankful for how faithful he has been to us, how he provided for us. Have you ever thought about your life as a forever offering to God? So Romans picks this up and says, you are to be a living sacrifice. You're a forever sacrifice. See, the firstborn wasn't killed. The firstborn lived in service before God. And that's what Paul picks up. The idea of being a living sacrifice is you are forever living for God as a sacrifice to him. The way you live, the way you speak, the way you serve, the way you are operating in this life is to live like a forever living sacrifice to the Lord. Remember I mentioned that Samuel, his name means to be heard of God. Did you know that Samuel doesn't do any miracles? Not one. Elijah does miracles. Moses does miracles. Samuel doesn't do any miracles. In fact, the thing about Samuel that is going to typify his life is one word, faithfulness. In fact, I could summarize his whole life. It's in chapter 7, verse 16. Here's Samuel's life. Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah. These three cities. Teaching, instructing, helping. Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah. And then he does it again. 
and then he does it again, and then he does it again, and then he does it again, and he does it again for 30 plus years. It's a life of mundane faithfulness. If you ever feel like your life is the same thing over and over again, not much exciting, not a lot of glamour, it's just like doing the same thing, keep serving, keep committing, keep loving in the same circumstances, that's what Samuel's like, and it grabs God's attention. Miracles are fine, but faithfulness over time, Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, grabs God's attention. So much so that later in the Bible, when they reference people who've done amazing things, Samuel's name shows up, both in the book of Psalms and Jeremiah. Hey, Moses and Aaron were called to be priests, and Samuel was among those who were called upon his name. They called upon the Lord and he answered them. Samuel was known by God and mentioned later in the Bible and the Psalms as someone who just continued to call upon God's name. God, thank you for what you're doing. Give me wisdom here. Help me to lead people. Help me to lead people out of a time when everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. In Jeremiah, God says, And the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward these people. He thought of all the people who could influence me, of all the people I like to talk to, interact with, Moses and Samuel make the list. Heard of God, faithful living, and thankful living. All out of the expression of an understanding of what God has done for us. The way in which God loved us, he cared for us, and he looked after us. When you realize that the Lord of armies who didn't have to come to earth and didn't have to go to battle for you, for your forgiveness, he could have just sat up in heaven and let us go our own way. But he didn't. In fact, maybe you've seen the movie It's a, it's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. If not, you know, some classic scenes. Hey, 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 you want the moon, Mary? You want the moon? I'll throw a lasso around. We'll pull it down here. A little, little moonbeams coming out of your eyeballs. I like that. My brother Harry went to war. You know, this is Jimmy Stewart, man. But you may not know is that prior to that movie, he got very, very famous for his role in a Philadelphia story. He got fame. He got popularity. He got money. He got everything he needed. And then World War II began. And he said, I'm going to leave the peace and the popularity and the wealth, and I want to go and serve in World War II. So he enlisted in the army. And they wouldn't accept him because of his height to weight ratio. He was just too skinny. So he bulked up so he could serve in World War II. He got enlisted by the Air Force, and he had 400 hours as a pilot, a private pilot. And so they used him to train other pilots, but they kept him in the safety and out of harm's way. He said, no, 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 no. I did not enlist to be safe. I enlisted to go to battle to help serve other people. Put me on the front lines. And he pushed and pushed and pushed. They didn't want an actor to die who was well known. He pushed and pushed and he ended up getting located in London where he led and got all kinds of awards, all kinds of promotions as he trained all the bomber runs that headed out from London. In fact, he scheduled himself to be on the bomber raids Almost every single time. An unbelievable amount of awards. And at the end of the war, when he headed home, he had severe PTSD from all of the bombing, all of the explosions, seeing some of his friends falling out of airplanes screaming. He came back to Hollywood, just a complete mess from the emotions of having battled on the front lines. And 
there was this no-name movie that did not do very well at all for the first couple of years. It was called It's a Wonderful Life, and they had a role for a suicidal father named George Bailey. And he took that role. And in several accounts, that some of the scenes where he's crying in the movie aren't him acting, it's him reliving the PTSD from having been in World War II. And this movie that didn't do well but then gained popularity has now become a classic speaks to how valuable you are, that God has a place for you, God has a reason for you. When you feel like your life doesn't have any purpose, God sees you and is using you in a powerful way. Is because somebody who could have lived a convenient, easy life went to battle for you. And that's what Jesus did for you. To be your propitiation. He could have stayed up safe in heaven, but instead he went to the battle lines. He could have just come to earth. Good to see you. Here's some Ten Commandments. Good luck. He was betrayed. He was crucified. He allowed himself to be killed on a cross. So that you and I, out of our thanksgiving for what he's done, out of our, our love for who he is, would live a life of thankfulness, thanking him for being the Lord of armies for us. So here's the question. Will you lend back to the Lord everything that you've received from the Lord? Will you live like a steward? A thankful steward of everything God's given to you. Will you live a thankful life? To do that, you're going to have to fill your mind up with thankfulness. I mean, look at what Hannah did. This is how you live thankfully, by the way. You fill your mind up with what God has remembered you, you remember that He's remembered you, and your mind is so filled by meditating on that that you get thankful. You're full of thanks. The Lord remembered her, and she remembered that He remembered her. Make that list of all the ways God's remembered you. Meditate on it. Think about it. Put it into a list. Put it on your mirror. Every day, write it out. Say it out loud. Just keep meditating. When we meditate on our spouse's faults, it's no wonder we're cynical and bitter toward them. When we meditate on our spouse's positives, it's amazing how we get thankful. Our kids, oh, they're driving us crazy. Uh, Do you remember you prayed for them, how you wanted them, how you loved them, how you cared for them, what makes them special? Fill your mind up with the things God has remembered you in until you're thankful. And out of that thankful heart, remember to go up to God and offer up thanks with your mouth, with your wallet, with your calendar, with your speech. Thank God for what he's done in your life. Thank him for his forgiveness. Thank him for his mercy. And thank him for being the God who doesn't watch from a distance but fights for you on the mercy seat. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the ways you work. Thank you for the way you worked for us at Calvary. Help us to be faithful to you out of thanksgiving for how faithful you've been to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you head out today, I want you to give you one more hint as to how you can learn some... uh, kind of skills of thankfulness. We actually have a, an evening tonight. We have a family night at 6 p.m. And sometimes we have family members who are struggling with depression or discouragement. And maybe you have teenagers in that case. Some folks from the Linder Center Hope are going to be here as well as me at 6 p.m. And we're going to speak tonight at our family night about to help family members going through challenges, how to encourage them, how to speak thanksgiving into them, how to speak affirmation into them. So if that's something to be helpful for you, feel free to come back tonight at 6 p.m. for family night. Otherwise, we'll see you next week.